Well, there was a Bible college professor who was lecturing his class on the topic of holiness. And he began by asking them, well, what does holy mean? And his students had been taught their lexicons, and they knew their, uh, their Hebrew and Greek roots of words. And so one, one student spoke up fairly confidently, and he said, holy means separate from. The professor nodded his approval. And he said, separate from what? There was no answer to that one for a few long seconds, until a voice chimed up from the back of the room and said, well, separate from anything fun. And we can, we can afford a tiny little chuckle at that because it does bear a little bit too much of a resemblance to the way some people think about Christianity and holiness. But our response overall has to be kind of, what a shame. What a shame that sometimes we let ourselves think about holiness that way. Here's another angle to, on the same thought, another way to think about the same thing. You meet Brenda. Brenda grew up outside the church and she was in her mid-20s when a friend began to talk to her about Jesus. It eventually invited her out to her church, started sharing the gospel with her. And eventually God saved her that way. Brenda came to understand that her sins had separated her from a holy God. She realized that God really had sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a perfect, sinless life, and that Jesus then offered that perfect life on the cross to die the death that her sins required. She put her faith in Jesus, in his death, and resurrection, she repented of her sins and received the free gift of salvation that God has provided in his grace. So now Brenda has a new life as a child of God. She starts to think differently about what she says and does because she's aware that now she belongs to Jesus. She begins to watch other Christians in the church and learn from them to study her Bible and to pray, and she grows in this new life. There are lots of old sinful habits and patterns in Brenda's life that trip her up. She continues to struggle with some. She imagines incorrectly that all those other believers in her life don't struggle the way she does. She hears lots of messages about overcoming sin and living a holy life. And some days things go well. She can really feel the Holy Spirit working in her, changing her. But other days, not so well. The old sins and temptations feel like they need to be battled again and again. And Brenda becomes obsessed with the things that she has given up, the things that should be behind her. Her understanding of how well or not well she's doing in the Christian faith ends up boiling down to the sins that she didn't commit in that particular month or week or day. That initial excitement and joy that came with becoming a Christian seems very far away as she ends up thinking less and less about what Jesus did for her and more and more about what she seems to fail to do for him. Tragically, Brenda's idea of holiness seems to have been formed and shaped by the same perspective that that seminary student gave on holiness. It means separate, separate from anything fun. Well, in one sense, the word holy does mean separate from. It means separate from sin. It means set apart on a totally different plane. It means set apart for good. Holiness is where the good stuff is. There's a fantastic lie that Satan and sin and the world manage to tell us. They manage to convince us that sin is where the fun stuff is. If we resolve to live a life that battles against sin, that means signing up for a boring, unfulfilling life. And we end up looking over our shoulder, like Israel, just rescued from, sl- from slavery in the Exodus, already looking back and missing what it was like to be a slave. If the only thing we think about is how we gave up things and how we don't get to do them now, 
then the the pursuit of holiness in our lives boils down to just one long, how long can I not do it contest? How long can I go without sin this time? Last week's chapter in Proverbs 7 turns into just a rod that your conscience uses to beat you over and over and make you feel guilty. You can only resist temptation so long if, you, if your entire life is two categories. What I don't get to do and the time that I'm not doing what I really want to do. Proverbs 5 and 6 and 7 and lots of passages like them warn us against some of the pitfalls that will do serious harm if you fall into them. God helpfully provides those warnings because he, didn't want, he doesn't want to see us hurt. Or worse, he doesn't want to see people enslaved and killed by those things. But that is only one half of the story. Proverbs 8 helps remind us of the other half. In the passage we get to look at today, we hear wisdom call out to everyone who will listen. And wisdom reminds us that the truly good things are not the ones that you chase after in the dark. The really good things, the things that satisfy, the things that you were made for, they are found in God. And they are better than the deadly imposters that you have to give up if you want to follow Jesus. In your notes at the top there, I have an almost quote from Jesus. It says, I came that they may have life. That's really, really close to something that Jesus actually said. And this is, I admit, this is a very cruel trick question. But there's one thing that doesn't belong in that sentence. Does anyone know what it is? What? No, all the words are there. I said this is a really cruel one. The saying is from John 10.10, and the thing that doesn't belong is the period. Jesus did say, I came, that they may have life. The sentence just doesn't end there. What Jesus actually said was this, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly. Exceedingly. Life and life and more life than you can hold until it just overflows out of you. Nothing less than the best kind of life is what's offered by Jesus. Eternal life. Life that enjoys and worships and personally knows God himself, the one that made you. We talked a little bit last week about the idea in Proverbs 7 and verse 4 that we're supposed to consider wisdom like our sister. And by spending time with her, then we can be saved from running after the seductress snares of temptation. And the idea is this, life with God is better. It's better than sin. It's better than the things you have to give up to follow Jesus. Life with God is greater than all those things that tempt you. And it's when you get a taste of how good he is. That's when, to borrow a phrase from an old hymn, the rest of things in life begin to grow strangely dim. The always quotable C.S. Lewis said this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the promises promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to keep on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Think about that for a second. Sometimes we're far too easily pleased. We let our sights get set too low. According to Lewis, and I think he's right when he said that this is according to Jesus, our desires aren't always too strong. Sometimes they're too weak. We chase after things that don't satisfy us. 
because we were made to find our meaning in God himself. And one of the real secrets to growing in holiness is focusing less on those things that we have to part with and focusing more on the abundant goodness that forgiven sinners like us are welcomed into in Jesus Christ. Someone once told me that when you pull up a weed in your lawn, you should sprinkle some grass seed in the hole where the weed was so that uh, you know, there won't be room for the weed to grow back. There'll be grass there instead. I don't know. I've never seen it actually work, but it seems like a good idea to me. <laughs> I don't know. I do know, though, that the best way to guard against falling back into sin is to replace that pattern of sin with something new and healthy. Salvation is not rescue from sin into a life of, eh, not sin. Salvation is to righteousness and awesomeness and to the glory of God. So we can approach Proverbs 8 this morning with a kind of freshness and excitement because we get to hear the other side of the story. We get to hear wisdom call out, not like the empty promises that temptation made, but with a genuine offer of abundant life to any who will listen. So please, if you haven't already, turn with me to Proverbs Proverbs chapter 8. Starting in verse 1. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town and at the entrance of the portal she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Now, you may have noticed, David has pointed out for you, that the title of today's sermon is Wisdom for Dummies. That's taken from that incredible, incredibly successful For Dummies book series out there. I'm sure you've seen them, the, you know, the black and yellow marketing, all sorts of different topics. Sewing for dummies, email for dummies, preaching for dummies. There's a whole series, all, all sorts of them. From what I've seen, they're actually pretty useful books. You know, they, each one gives you some expert but easy-to-understand explanation of what you need to know to get through whatever topic the book is written on. The only one that I've ever read cover to cover that I can really vouch for is one entry entitled The Husband's Guide to Pregnancy for Dummies, bought and purchased while Shelley was expecting Matthew. It was very useful to me because I was the exact target audience of that book. <laughs> and go ahead and laugh. But we all get to laugh together at each other in just a minute because every single one of us is the exact target audience of Proverbs 8. Listen to wisdom. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Wisdom is for dummies. Wisdom is for fools, which is actually really good news for us because not one of us was born wise. Remember that Jesus said he was not sent to call the righteous. He was sent to call sinners to repentance. In the same way, we can breathe a sigh of relief that wisdom does not call out those who are already wise, but the ones who are able to admit their folly, the ones who are able to humble themselves and ask for help and be taught. Peek down at verse 17. Wisdom says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. What good news is that? But you don't need to be a certain age to seek out wisdom. Contrary to popular belief, no gray hairs required. You don't need to have a certain kind of education or a particularly nimble brain in your head. 
Wisdom doesn't favor the rich or the poor or the strong or the weak. Wisdom is found by anyone who really looks. If you're seriously interested in looking for life with God, he will find you and make himself known to you. God's word, God's wisdom teaches prudence to the simple and it gives sense to fools, but only if they admit they need it. Look at some of the characteristics of wisdom in verses 6 to 13. Wisdom is resourceful and wisdom is righteous. Verse 6. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There's nothing twisted or crooked in them. They're all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Wisdom is true. There's something special about the promise that only true, noble things are going to pass through wisdom's lips. There's nothing twisted or crooked. There's only righteous truth. Not one thing that God has ever said in his word is going to need correction. It'll never need a cover-up. There's no inconsistencies. There's no promise that will never be kept. But notice carefully verse 9. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Truth is always consistent with itself. It's the nice thing about truth, is you can't twist truth up in a lie. It's always true. But many times truth roams into a wall because we just don't want to hear it. Wisdom only speaks truth to our hearts, and sometimes that makes wisdom sound blunt or harsh, but it's for our own good. God is incapable of giving you anything less than what is excellent and what is true. So we come to his word to hear what's true, to listen to it and be changed by it. Jesus Christ still speaks God's wisdom to us today, but that's a tough job description, telling fools what they don't want to hear. There are times when our own stubborn, inward-looking perspective wants nothing less than than to hear the truth. But to everyone who understands, for everyone who tries out the truth and tests it and looks into what wisdom has to say, the truth always holds up to inspection. Personally, I belong to Jesus Christ because when he told me, long time ago, when he told me something I had no interest in hearing, that my sins had made me an enemy of God himself, that the only hope of rescue was the blood that he had shed on my behalf, I didn't want that to be true. But I knew it was true. As the apostle said, may God be true, though every man be a liar. God's word is true. We can't run from that. We can hate it, or we can deny it, but we can't run from the fact that it's true. Look into it for yourself. Put it to the test. Study God's word. Ask it. Examine it from every angle, and you'll always find it to be perfect. And in addition to being true, God's wisdom is also practically beneficial. Without ever once sacrificing what is good and true and righteous on the altar of productivity. Look at verses 12 and 13 together. Verse 12. I, wisdom, dwell in prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. Okay, prudence and knowledge and discretion are three very practical things. Those are practical words. 
This wisdom that's calling out is not the kind of empty philosophical banter you get back and forth between philosophers that just kind of quibbles over fine points. It never actually rolls up its sleeves and gets anything done. Wisdom is resourceful. Wisdom knows how to get things done. But we need to be very clear on one thing. Wisdom never, ever compromises on righteousness. Verse 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I, wisdom, hate. Wisdom might be resourceful. It might know how to get things done. But she is also righteous, never straying from the truth. There's a tendency in our world to kind of assume that those two things, usefulness and righteousness, don't coexist together, that they are not partners. You have to choose between either getting things done or sticking to your principles. It's one or the other. To be wise is to embrace the fear of the Lord and to hate evil. The balance in life was taught by Jesus. He taught his disciples, be shrewd as serpents, be innocent as doves. At the same time, So yes, you think about what's going to get the best result, but you also think hard about what does a proper fear of the Lord say about this situation. The rest of the paragraph from verses 14 down to 21, it assures us that wisdom does not leave her admirers out in the cold when it comes to results. In fact, quite the opposite is true. Wisdom wields great power, and she also gives great rewards. Picking it up in verse 14. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who, ju- all who govern justly. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Wisdom is the way kings reign, we learn in those verses. Wisdom is how rulers know how to rule in justice and to do well. Wisdom doesn't say that everyone who rules loves her. She says that when the rulers decree what is just and govern justly, the ones that love wisdom, she loves them back and she helps them to reign with wisdom. The whole concept of a king back in Israel had some very particular measures of success and failure. What made for a good king back in Israel, according to God's word, is not exactly the same thing that our country looks for in government leaders today. In Israel, a good king had one primary characteristic— One thing a king had to get right, and he was a good king. And if he missed it, he didn't stand a chance. He had to fear the Lord. Israel's king was there to represent Yahweh's dominion over everything. And when a king ruled well, he remembered that even though he might be sitting on the throne, it was really the Lord who ruled in heaven. That's what made for a good king. And it might be easy for us to feel sorry for ourselves. We we compare the goals and priorities of government back then and with the way it's different in our day and age now. But before you get too jealous of the way it was back then, just remember this. Israel had very, very few good kings. Even the good ones were far from perfect. In a lot of ways, the people of Israel, during the time of the Davidic kings, Davidic kings they longed exactly for the same thing that we long for now, which is a truly just and wise king. Someone to be in charge who knows what they're doing. 
to rule perfectly on God's behalf. And you can hear those hopes for a perfect king come out in some of the prophecies in Isaiah. In Isaiah 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A little further in Isaiah 11, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So one day, that was the hope and the promise of God to his people. One day, a perfect son will sit on David's throne. And it will be so perfect, it will be like God himself reigning over the people. Doling out wisdom and righteousness. And now, all of these generations later, we have the benefit of knowing who that perfect king was. Jesus, God's actual son. He sits on the throne now, and we look forward to that day when all the nations, when everyone will acknowledge him and bow down to him. Wisdom is what makes for a good ruler. Wisdom not only has the power to get things done properly for kings and rulers, but wisdom has with her honor and riches and wealth and righteousness. Wisdom has great rewards. Walking according to God's wisdom does not necessarily guarantee you fame and fortune in this life. Sometimes quite the opposite. Sometimes hardship for God's followers in this life so that he can raise them up in the next. But look at verse 18. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold. What's wisdom claiming? That the results of following her ways are not gold and silver, but the results of following her ways are better than gold and silver. Better than all the riches you can imagine. She says, I walk in the way of righteousness, in the path of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. We're going to find out at the end of the chapter that finding wisdom is actually the only way to find life itself. That eternal life in God's presence is the ultimate reward that comes from hearing God's wisdom. But for now, it's enough to point out the benefits of choosing God's wisdom that they're not imaginary, they're real. They're real benefits, and the greatest power and the best rewards can be found with her. And again, we almost have to pinch ourselves and ask, this seems too good to be true. How could you have something that is practical and effective, but still godly and righteous? Things don't appear to work, they just don't look like they work that way in our world. Usually we have to choose between what gets results or what sticks with your principles. And now wisdom claims she combines resourcefulness with truth and righteousness and power, and to top it all off, it's possible to rule well in justice and reap rich rewards if you side with her. It seems too good to be true, and it calls to mind a passage in the New Testament about the differences between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. You can turn there with me if you'd like. Just keep a finger in Proverbs 8. Paul calls calls the cross of Christ the wisdom and the power of God. 1 Corinthians uh, 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. What the world calls wisdom and strength cannot combine usefulness with justice and power with goodness. It says you have to choose. But Paul reminds us that the world also misses the greatest demonstration ever given of God's wisdom and power. The cross of Christ, which to those who stand outside the truth and reject it looks like complete and utter foolishness. That God would save sinners who repent and trust in a man dying on the cross is not the most naturally convincing story out there. By faith I know it to be true with every fiber of my being. But it doesn't automatically persuade everyone when they hear it. Just like the way God's wisdom speaks perfect truth that can be understood by those who believe, but it gets rejected by those who don't. The cross is salvation for those who believe, but it's a stumbling block for those who don't. It's not the story we would write if history were up to us, if the pen was in a human hand. It's not something that has its beginning in human wisdom or creativity. It is the wisdom of God on display, and the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And God wanted it that way. He wanted to demonstrate his goodness in a way that can't be bought or sold or owned or manipulated by people that can only be received by faith. God's wisdom reaches conclusions that human wisdom just can't reach. If we start with what we know and what we understand, we can't think ourselves to a place where we get what we really want and we live righteously before God. Because what we really want is not what God wants for us. But the next section, starting in verse 22, actually reveals the secret behind wisdom's claims. Here is why wisdom actually works. Here is why it all works out, that wisdom really can give everything that she promises. Because God's wisdom is built right into creation itself. Look at verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of men. Wisdom's big secret is this. All of creation is built on her. Wisdom was with God from the very beginning. God didn't create a single thing without the principles of his wisdom. So in God's eyes, doing right is compatible with getting things done well which is compatible with getting the best rewards. And it is compatible with wielding power and walking in truth. Because those are the very principles that he used to design everything in creation. And your purpose and my purpose. The world we stand on and the air we breathe. Wisdom works because the world was designed to work that way. And the reason we have a hard time seeing it in the world around us right now is because the world is currently broken by sin and death. But the cross, the wisdom, and the power of God on display in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ 
promises to reverse all of the damage that sin has done. It may very well be the case that from certain perspectives, doing right appears to work better. Doing right prevents you from getting things done. But that's not the way things were made to be. Things were made to line up with when you do right, that's when eternal and good things get done. And it's not the way things will be when God's finished renewing and recreating and redeeming everything. Wisdom shows herself to be foundation in all of creation. And Jesus Christ crucified, the wisdom and power of God, begins a process that will bring all of creation back to what it was meant to be. Wisdom offers herself freely to everyone who would seek her. Christ is the one making the offer to remove your guilt, to remove your sin, and invite you into what God is doing and has always intended on doing in creation. Just look at the sheer amount of delight in verses 30 and 31. How happy things are there. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. There's a picture of what this world was made for. Genesis tells us that when God finished everything, he looked over all that he had made and declared it was good. Good. And Christ promises that, behold, he is making all things new. That by the time he's done, because of the work he's done, everything will be declared good again. The one who offers to take your life and make you new, he's excited about creation. He's excited about the goodness that's in it. He's excited about what it was made for and what you were made for. And honestly, sometimes I wonder about the generation that I'm a part of. It seems it's really easy for us to get really sarcastic and cynical about everything. It seems there's almost nothing that we can't turn into a joke. Nothing that we really actually take seriously. And I'm talking about myself here and about lots of others. Not, just my, not limited to my generation, but it's something that I see a lot, and it, it makes me wonder. I see it in myself. I don't know if it's a defense mechanism to guard against we don't want our hopes to get up too high because things look pretty grim, or if it's just a way to shoulder off the responsibility. If nothing can really be good, then somehow I guess it's okay if I just sort of waste my time being mediocre. But verses so filled to the brim with delight and joy and rejoicing in creation, like verses 30 and 31, the way things were meant to be, the way Jesus is going to make them again, that makes me stop and wonder about some of the ways I spend my time. It makes me wonder if I've settled for something like what Lewis would call mud pies in the slums because I don't even have any idea what a holiday at the beach would look like. Sarcasm and cynicism, it might protect us from getting our hopes disappointed, but they also keep us away from the kind of rejoicing that God has in store for his creatures and his creation. I really mean that this is something that's coming through the preacher first, and I say it with trembling when I consider my own life. But some of us spend too much time asking the wrong question. We ask, what am I allowed to get away with? What are the boundaries and the rules that I have to stay within in my new life, Jesus? How far away from God's goodness can I get and still be called yours? What are the things that I can acceptably waste my time doing? here on earth. And the question we should be asking is, what will bring me closer to you, God? What good and awesome things do you have for me as I grow closer to you, closer in holiness to the perfect joy that you made me for? 
Wisdom doesn't just help avoid the pitfalls, but it beckons us to climb up the mountain, to taste and see that the Lord is good, and to settle for nothing less, no matter what this world offers. And as we look at the end of the chapter, we see all of this talk about wisdom is pushing us towards a decision. One decision, one way or the other. Wisdom is the one necessity for true life. Find her and you get life. Miss her and you miss it. Verse 32. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, watching beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. The one thing you have to find is wisdom. It's the one thing that's worth waiting for, to get at any cost. Because if you get her, along with her comes life and favor with God. But what I find really interesting is the way the flip side is expressed in verse 36. He who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. All who hate me, wisdom, actually love death. They're going to end up hurting themselves. Because inside each one of us is that fool who convinces himself that he needs nothing of God's wisdom or goodness. No, thank you, sir. I'm doing perfectly fine over here on my own. That's the attitude that needs to die if we're ever going to find and receive the help we need in Jesus. The good news is that wisdom calls out to fools. Wisdom is for fools, and it warns them. Jesus came to save sinners, to bring them to repentance and wash them and clean them and make them holy and give them life, even life to the fullest, life abundant. But if you are a fool, then wisdom is looking for you. You can confess that you need help. Jesus is ready to give you all the fulfillment and all the joy that you were made for. But there's a warning here again, I think, for the cynics and the skeptics who hold themselves back from trusting Jesus fully. There's something making the rounds in the air these days that imitates repentance. And I'm not, I don't mean in the church necessarily, but it seeps in, but like out there in the world. There's something that our world inappropriately labels authenticity. And it has the outward form and truth of righteousness, but none of the substance. It's possible to talk about our failures. To talk about the way we waste our time. The way we do things we shouldn't, or the way we don't do the things we should. To admit that we know full well we are spending our time and money and energy in the wrong places, and then to not even try to change it at all. As if admitting it, owning it, we might say, makes it all okay. But it's important to challenge ourselves and realize that owning our mistakes is not the same thing as repenting of them. Jesus doesn't call us to just admit that we're awful and fully plan to stay awful. To admit that we're using our time wrong and then just keep on using our time wrong. Repenting of what's wrong isn't just admitting it's wrong, it's forsaking it for something else. It's choosing something else in place. Jesus made it very clear, it's not the ones who say to him, Lord, Lord, who will enter the kingdom of heaven, it's only those who actually do the Father's will. They will enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have this incredible promise that Jesus is the friend of sinners, that he can take any life, no matter how broken, and bring forgiveness and restoration and make something beautiful out of it, we have this lovely guarantee from wisdom who says that everyone who truly seeks her finds her. 
But there's also a sobering warning. Failing to find her amounts to loss. And hating the good things she offers is the same thing as loving death. 1 John 5.12 says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Just like it, Proverbs 8, Whoever finds wisdom finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but whoever fails to find me injures himself, and all who hate me love death. It is impossible to truly love wisdom and end up rejecting the Son of God, who died on the cross to save you from your sins. Wisdom points us squarely towards Jesus, the wisdom and the power of God revealed in salvation. If you have the Son, you also love God's wisdom. You can't have the Son and act in opposition to everything good that He promises in your life. So as you plan your week from here, thinking forward about the next few days, what is going to look in your life like you are diligently seeking out wisdom? What effects will having the Son of God in your life actually show in your actions and your time and your priorities? The odds are really strong against you finding more hours in this week than there were last week. Which means you have to make choices. You have to make choices about what is important to grow in the knowledge and enjoyment of God's Son. If you want to start practicing God's wisdom. You have to start asking, what am I doing with my time? Am I settling for just avoiding some of the pitfalls so I can enjoy passing entertainment and pleasures in this world? Or am I asking the question of what I spend doing my time, is this what will make me holy? Is this what leads up the mountain? Is this what draws me closer to God and what I'm made for? The God who saved me in Christ, the God who has every good thing set aside in his presence for me to enjoy. I know I need to ask myself that. Let's bow before God now and take it to him. Father, we thank you for the promise that it's not righteous but sinners who find salvation in Jesus. And we thank you for the promise that wisdom gives here in Proverbs 8 that it's fools that she's seeking. That wisdom is for the ones who lack sense, who need it. And Father, we thank you for the promise that if we truly seek you out, we will find you. Jesus, we want to pray to you today the words that we sang earlier on. That seeking you as a precious jewel Lord, to give up, we would be a fool. We pray, Lord, that you help us make you our all in all. That that wouldn't just be a pleasing melody on our lips here on a Sunday morning, but that would be the reality that we live out from day to day in the coming week. Help us to not just think about the things you've rescued us from, but give us a clear picture of what you rescued us for. Use us for the glory of your kingdom. Get us excited about what you're excited about. Break our hearts for what breaks your heart in the world around us. Show us the needs and and the love that we can show. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, make it impossible for that love not to spill out into others around us in this world. Remind us what's important. Remind us that the gospel is a life or death matter. Help us to take it out to those who need it. And Lord, don't let us settle for anything less than the good purposes that you have called each one of us here to, for the good things that you had in mind from the creation of the world for us to do. Let's live a week where we do those things. Jesus, we pray that you lead us and help us. 
in your name. Amen.